to the Equipoise Podcast. Today's episode, How It All Went Down. In our last episode, I tried to make a case for not throwing out the King James Bible, and I talked about some good reasons to include it in your lineup of Bible translations. I continue to read and preach from the King James Bible regularly, and it will always hold a dear and prominent place in my heart. Over the last couple of months, however, I've tried to make the case that it is intellectually dishonest, historically inaccurate, and ultimately dishonoring to the gospel to insist on what's commonly called a King James-only position. Keep in mind that I'm not pursuing any other versions for the sake of change itself or looking to switch it up just to keep up with the ecclesiastical and academic Joneses. Rather, I'm simply trying to dispel decades of deception that has spread over the years, usually with good intent, throughout the modern Western evangelical church. I'm interested in the truth. So today I want to briefly foray not into the syntactical realm, but into the historical realm. In short, I want to tell you very quickly how we arrived from the biblical authors all the way down to the King James translation of the Bible. In other words, I want to tell you how it all went down, just the facts. First, we begin with the autographs. We talked about this with Isaac Thibodeau for a few episodes, so I won't spend too much time here. But these are the original documents penned by Matthew, Mark, Paul, or whoever. These original autographs were likely in Aramaic and somewhere possibly in Greek. We no longer have these documents, but we have copies. Copious amounts of copies, to be clear. Thousands and thousands of copies that were translated by moms and dads and butchers and barbers and bakers, all kinds of classes of Christians long before the printing press existed. We have enough of these copies to be reasonably and academically certain that they contain the contents of the original documents with very few differences, none of which are doctrinally significant. But how do these copies make their way into our hands in English? Well, that story begins with the Roman Empire, interestingly enough, which in the 4th century became a Christian empire, at least in name, and I'll save the debate over the details of that one for another episode perhaps, but the tall and small of it is that a 4th century Roman Catholic scholar named Jerome embraced the task of translating the Bible into the vernacular of the people, which was, at the time, Latin. There's a lot to say about this translation, but that's for another day. The Bible remained in Latin for a long, long time in the form of Jerome's Latin Vulgate, the word Vulgate meaning a book that common people could read. But eventually, as the lingua franca of the world shifted to other languages, including English, other translations were needed. Latin just wasn't what people spoke anymore. However, in an ironic twist of fate, the Roman Catholic Church forbade the translating of the Bible into any language beside their Latin Vulgate. Nonetheless, a 14th century scholar named John Wycliffe rose to the occasion and did just this, translating the Bible into English before his death. Four centuries after which, the Roman Catholic Church dug up his bones and burned them, or crushed and scattered them, depending on whom you ask. It was a different time, to say the least, and a dark one. Others followed in Wycliffe's heroic tradition over the next couple of centuries, not the least of which was Martin Luther, who, in his vehement crusade against the Roman Catholic Church date, spent 12 years translating the Bible into German, his own tongue, from the limited Hebrew text to which he had access, along with the Vulgate and the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Luther would be instrumental in helping one William Tyndale produce the New Testament in English, for which William Tyndale was burned at the stake while begging God to open the King of England's eyes. Tyndale's story is a truly amazing one, but I'll save that for another day too. Now, why was this so important? Why couldn't people just be content to learn Latin? Well, two reasons. Accessibility and accuracy. Accessibility because these men believed people needed a Bible in their native tongue, so much so that they were willing to be tortured and killed for their translational efforts. 
accuracy because, well, to let the 15th century doctor and scholar Thomas Lineker say it after comparing the Greek text to his copy of the Latin Vulgate, both of which were languages in which he was extremely fluent, here's what he said. Either this, the Greek text, is not the gospel or we are not Christian. In other words, the Latin Vulgate had become sorely polluted and corrupted over the thousand-year reign it enjoyed under the watchful eye and bloody hands of the Roman Catholic State Church. In the years surrounding the endeavors of Luther and Tyndale, a man named Desiderius Erasmus produced a translation of the Bible that put the Latin and Greek side by side. He, too, was convinced that the Latin Bible was both inaccurate and out of touch. There's a lot to say about this man and his translation, too, but we're going to keep moving. Two of Tyndale's associates, Miles Coverdale and John Rogers, known also as Thomas, Matthew were instrumental in carrying the English Bible translation project forward. In 1535, Coverdale printed the first complete Bible in the English language. Wycliffe's was handwritten. This Bible made use of Luther's German text and the Latin text as well. Two years later, Rogers produced the Matthews Bible, which was the second complete English Bible that was printed. This one, however, drew more from the best Hebrew and Greek manuscripts they had, along with Tyndale's translation, instead of the German and Latin. Then, just two years after that, something really interesting happened. <laughs> King Henry VIII got super bent out of shape at the Pope for not letting him divorce his wife and marry his mistress. Naturally, he renounced Roman Catholicism and essentially formed the Church of England and declared himself head of the Church, you know, as one does. And thus, the Anglican Church was born, and Henry VIII's first act? Oh yeah, he was going to stick it to the Pope by authorizing the first legal English Bible, which was the Great Bible. In the years following this, Bloody Mary eventually took the throne of England and, in her quest to bring England once again under the Roman Catholic Church's authority, had both John Rogers and Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury who hired Coverdale to translate the Great Bible, burned at the stake. This began a period known as the Marian Exile, where many Christians fled to Geneva, Switzerland. It was here that the Geneva Bible was produced, the New Testament in 1557, and the whole Bible in 1560. Between 1560 and 1644, almost 150 editions of the Geneva Bible were printed. It was a staggeringly popular Bible. It was the first English Bible to make it to America, and is still known today as the Bible of the Protestant Reformation. Interestingly, though the Church of England, now under Queen Elizabeth I, was tolerant of the Geneva Bible, it was no fan of it due to its marginal notes <laughs> denouncing the church state of the day, among other things. So, so they did what anybody would do. They commissioned another authorized English Bible to replace the Great Bible and compete with the more radical and anti-establishment Geneva Bible of those pesky reformers and Puritans. This was introduced in 1568 and is known as the Bishop's Bible. However, even after almost 20 editions over the next few decades, it never gained a foothold over the Geneva Bible. In the meantime, the Roman Catholic Church was learning that if you can't beat them, join them. So in 1582, they decided to wave the white flag of surrender to the masses and produce their own English translation of the corrupted Latin Vulgate and called it the Dewey Rames Bible. It was kind of a mess. So we've got the Geneva Bible used and beloved by the masses due to its scholarly and accessible approach. The Bishop's Bible officially endorsed by an Anglican church losing its relevance rather quickly. And the Dewey Rames Bible now tossed into the ring by a desperate Roman Catholic church in an attempt to claw its way back into the limelight. What now? Enter the King James Bible. After Elizabeth I died, Prince James VI of Scotland became King James I of England. Don't ask. 
1604, at the Hampton Court Conference, a man named John Reynolds, for reasons we don't exactly know, suggested to King James that the Anglican Church commission a revision of their not-quite-so-beloved Bishop's Bible, while gleaning from the Geneva Bible as well as the Dewey Rames and some of the original manuscripts they had on hand. Now, King James liked this idea because he was something of a translator himself and because he wanted to create some unity around his own denomination's translation. So, this translation was completed in 1611 and really served the agenda of the Anglican Church well. For instance, the word church had to be translated as church instead of Tyndale's more accurate congregation. Uh, Baptize wasn't allowed to be translated immerse, where that was clearly meant by the context and surrounding syntax when it was. No, it was to read baptize. Also, since the marginal notes of the Geneva Bible were problematic for the Anglican Church, minimal marginal notes were allowed, especially any that challenged the church state of England. This was helpful in making sure that the crown would always have the ability to provide clarity and theology to the Bible, not, you know, scholarship. In time, and through some underhanded political and literary smear campaigns carried out by the King's printing press, sadly enough, the King James translation eventually became the prominent translation for English-speaking people without rival until the English Revised Version in the 1880s. So, knowing all this, how and why did the King James Bible achieve such cult status among many denominations today? And how was the King James Version-only movement born? Well, let's cover that in our final episode in this mini-series, so until then, stay balanced. Stay balanced.